When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. I'm Jared Halverson, this is Unshaken, and I'm thrilled that you're here. We have passed a milestone. We started this channel six months ago, and we just hit our one millionth view, which is amazing to me, that there are people all over the world that are so interested in fortifying their faith that they would spend time immersed in the scriptures each week. It really has been an amazing ride. I've loved reading your comments. I especially love that there's more communication between you in the comment section, and I've been making friends all over the world from Central and South America to Europe and Asia, uh, the Middle East, uh, Australia and the Islands of the Sea, the British Isles, all over the United States and Canada. It's been incredible. So thank you for being a part of this growing community. Today we'll be studying 3 Nephi chapter 20 through 26. And for whatever reason, I think I can guess a few, these are kind of the forgotten chapters of 3 Nephi, which is tragic because Jesus is still the one speaking. It seems that often we, we gear up for chapter 11. There's that climax, that crescendo, when Jesus descends among the Nephites and begins to minister. And then we, we're familiar enough with the Sermon on the Mount that we enjoy the Sermon at the Temple. We sort of get confused in chapter 15 and 16, but 17 comes to save the day with Jesus ministering to the Nephites in such a personal and powerful way, blessing the children, healing the sick, such a, such a masterpiece in 3 Nephi. But then we kind of, I don't know, lose interest might be too harsh, but we definitely lose a sense of momentum or understanding. And probably because in the chapters we're studying today, there is so much Old Testament. That was the scriptures for Jesus. And so, for example, when he is walking on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples who don't yet recognize him, he expounds all scriptures unto them concerning himself. And what scripture did he have to expound to them? The Old Testament. He's doing the same thing here. He's started that earlier, uh, quoting Isaiah back in chapter 16, for example. But here he's going to quote Isaiah uh, at length. He's going to quote Micah. He's going to quote Habakkuk. Uh, and it seems that most of us these days don't exactly have Habakkuk at the tip of our, at our fingertips or at the tip of our tongue. I get that. Uh, but the tragedy is we are missing out on the Savior's teaching. This is not some minor discourse that, ah, take it or leave it. The Savior of the world has come to teach them and to teach us. And we have to pay attention in spite of the difficulty and I guess generation gap would be an understatement between us and those ancient prophets in the Old Testament. But it is so relevant. In fact, in some ways, the Book of Mormon connects the ancient Old Testament world to the modern one. Since the Book of Mormon looked back to their scripture, brass plates, Old Testament, back to the scriptures that Jesus quoted, Old Testament, and forward to our day when we would have it all, the, the bridging the gap, so to speak. And in some ways, in fact, if you were to prioritize, I know this is hard to do, but it, we see chapters 20 through 26 as almost this interruption of the story, the narrative. Chapter 17 is really where it's all about, right? Where Jesus is blessing and healing and so on. But in reality, if you remember what we talked about last week, 
It's chapter 17 and 18 that are the interruption. They're the bonus chapters. They shouldn't really be there. Jesus, and in fact, check this out. The way he ends chapter 16, he quotes Isaiah 52, 8 through 10, saying this is what we're looking for. This is what we'll see when things are being fulfilled, when the covenant is taking place. In fact, that's what he gets back to in chapter 15. Let's, let's start over. Chapter 11, he descends, right? 12 through 14, he's teaching the sermon at the temple. Then 15, he starts explaining some things have been done away, law of Moses, but some overarching truths, the umbrella principles are still in effect. First and foremost, the covenant of the Father and my place in it as the Savior of the world. He then talks about other sheep, and that goes through the rest of chapter 15 and chapter 16, including the other, other sheep, which are the lost tribes of the house of Israel. And it's in that explanation that he culminates in Isaiah chapter 52. Then chapter 17 begins, and what's he saying? Oh, you guys still don't get it. That's verse 2 and 3. And I have to leave to go gather those other lost tribes. That's verse 4. Well, maybe before I go, to help you understand what I've just taught you, and to help prepare you for what I'm about to teach you when I return. Again, that was his original plan. Think about these things, ponder them, pray about them, prepare your mind. I come unto you again to do what? To pick up where I left off with Isaiah and with this prophecy of the gathering of Israel. Let me practice with you for a moment. Let me give you a preview of coming attractions. In fact, it made me think of a, a new word. We talk about reenacting things from the past. Well, in some ways, chapter 17, Jesus is going to pre-enact what he's trying to explain to them. Remember, I'm going to go gather lost tribes, to go share my voice with other, other lost sheep. And that's what I just talked to you about, and that's what I'm going to pick up and talk to you about more. But right now, right here, let me explain it by illustrating it. Let me pre-enact the gathering of Israel that I am trying to teach you about from Isaiah and Micah and Habakkuk. Come to me, anyone who is sick and afflicted. My bowels are filled with compassion and mercy for you. You who have ears to hear and legs to walk and eyes to see, bring the others that cannot come on their own. I want you who know my voice to gather to me those who cannot yet come on their own. That applies to the sick and the afflicted. It applies to the little children. You see what's happening? Those who have heard the message before gather to Jesus those who cannot come on their own. This is a pre-enactment of what he's trying to explain. The house of Israel had lost its way. The gospel goes to the Gentiles, and he is asking the Gentiles to go and gather scattered Israel home. Remember last time we talked about these concentric circles of compassion? Jesus in the middle, the little children around them, and then the bringers, uh, the, the parents, the family, anyone that's whole, and they're on the outside shepherding them in. Remember, Jesus heals all of them, both the bringers and the brought. He has compassion on both sides of this, and he blesses both sides, both those that are healed and those that are whole. This great good shepherd. This gatherer of Israel cares as much about Gentiles as he does about Jews. His redeeming reach spreads as broadly as the love of God and as broadly as the, the reach of the church has to become. We'll get to that point too. But do you get a sense of what he's doing? 
It kind of flips things. Instead of seeing chapter 17 as this incredible moment that was always meant to be a, a highlight in the Book of Mormon, and then we kind of lose interest with this Isaiah stuff and the talk about the gathering of Israel. No, it was all about the gathering of Israel. That's what 15 and 16 lead up to. Today, that's what 20 through 26 is all about. And those middle chapters we talked about last week that are so beautiful is the illustration and pre-enactment of what he's trying to explain to them. In fact, even in chapter 18, when he talks about the Holy Ghost and the sacrament and prayer and the church, he picks up on those things in chapter 20, excuse me, in chapter 19, where he returns to them. So they wouldn't really have missed, and well, they would have missed a ton if they missed chapter 17. But again, all the things that he teaches them, he's going to teach them the second day anyway, when he returns as promised. It's this pre-enactment that I find fascinating. And I, I hope that we can read the chapters that we're studying today in that light. Is If chapter 17 is personally moving to you, then it ought to move you and move me to participate in the gathering of Israel. As President Nelson has said repeatedly lately, it's the most important work that we can be engaged in right now, gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. If you think about the threefold mission of the church, why are we perfecting the saints at all? So that we can become good gatherers. That's the means to the greater end in the second and third, so that we can proclaim the gospel, gather Israel on this side of the veil, redeem the dead, gather Israel on the other side of the veil. These are the purposes the church is here. And as Jesus is organizing his church among the Nephites, same purposes apply. So let's see how he does it. Third Nephi chapter 20 begins. It came to pass that he commanded the multitude that they should cease to pray. Remember that word came up, what was it, 28 times in chapter 19? They're praying constantly. Jesus himself has gone back and forth and back and forth, three times interrupting his own prayer to God to return to them. Remember, this is the, the flip side, the, the, the celestial version of what his prayer in Gethsemane could and should have been, from the disciples' standpoint, that is. But there is a sense here in chapter 20, verse 1, that it's time to pray on our feet instead of pray on our knees. You can always be praying. That's what he gets at in this verse. He commands them that they should cease to pray, and also his disciples, and he commanded them that they should not cease to pray in their hearts. You see, there comes a time when you have to get up off your knees. There's stuff to do. But don't stop praying in your heart, because that stuff that you have to do still requires heaven's help. This is part of this always remembering him that we covenant in the sacrament. This prayer in our heart engages our work with God's work. His work and glory and ours need to coincide. Verse 2, he commands them to stand up, which they do. Again, prayers on knees, followed by prayers on feet. And then what does he do? Verse 3, he breaks bread again and blesses it and gives to the disciples to eat. And then they distribute it to the multitude. Verse 5 does the same thing with wine. The second day in a row, after instituting the sacrament the day before, he is now repeating the sacrament with them today. With one incredible difference. Verse 6, there had been no bread, neither wine, brought by the disciples, neither by the multitude. But he truly gave unto them bread to eat and wine to drink. This time, Jesus brought the sacrament himself. He provided the emblems, which, if you think about it, is always the case. Here, he provided them miraculously. This is like multiplying the loaves and the fishes without the loaves and the fishes. He provides them bread and wine miraculously. And I hope that whenever we partake of the sacrament, we recognize the miraculous nature by which it is offered us. 
that it is Jesus himself that offers his body and his blood. He miraculously brings the bread and the wine so that we can be healed and that we can be cleansed. He explains more in depth in verse 8 what these emblems signify. He that eateth this bread eateth of my body to his soul, and he that drinketh of this wine drinketh of my blood to his soul. This is not transubstantiation. This is not the emblem is the object. This is a representation. We could say that the bread and the wine, or in our day the water, is eaten to the body, while the body and the blood, as it says here, is eaten and drunk to the soul. Physical objects to a physical body, but spiritual realities being taken into the soul itself. And those that do so, he says at the end of this verse, his soul shall never hunger nor thirst, but shall be filled. Sound like the Beatitudes? Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, which is what they're seeking here, for they shall be filled with what? With the Holy Ghost. That's what he gets to in verse 9. When the multitude had all eaten and drunk, behold, they were filled with the Spirit. And they did cry out with one voice. That's the unity that comes, the at one that is being provided, that Jesus prayed for over and over in the previous chapter. And they gave glory to Jesus, whom they both saw and heard. I hope that these verses represent what happens to us whenever we participate in the sacrament. To hunger and thirst after things, to allow the soul to yearn for those realities and to find them and to be filled with them through the gift of the Holy Ghost. To recognize the miraculous provenance of this sacrament, that Jesus himself provides the bread and the water, his body and his blood. That it is an opportunity for us to become one with each other we're all doing the same thing. This, I, I love how other churches call this communion because we are trying not just to commune with God, but to have communion one with another. It is a meal. We are breaking bread together. So a time to speak to God with one voice, witnessing, bearing testimony to him that we believe in the Son and accept him into our lives and that we give him glory, that through the sacrament we can glorify the Father and the Son as they are seeking to sanctify us. And that through the sacrament, we can say that we have both seen and heard Jesus through his emblems, through his spirit. This is the experience we can have every Sunday. But now, having participated again in the sacrament, having renewed their covenants, Jesus can do what he's really been trying to do all along. Teach them what he's here for and what they're here for. Notice verse 10. It came to pass that when they had all given glory unto Jesus, he said unto them, Behold, now I finish the commandment which the Father hath commanded me concerning this people who are a remnant of the house of Israel. He keeps bringing that up. You're not just Lehites. You're not just Book of Mormon people. You are part of the house of Israel. Take it up a couple of generations and see where you really fit in this family tree. And what is this commandment that the Father had commanded him concerning the house of Israel? It's gather them home. It's make sure that they don't feel forgotten, which was a struggle from Lehi's family on down. Here we are let, pulled out of the promised land, Israel, to a new quote-unquote promised land for them. They've been scattered. Here is the gatherer. Verse 11, he then says, Remember that I spake unto you and said that when the words of Isaiah should be fulfilled, behold, they're written, you have them before you, therefore search them. So here's a commandment from the Lord himself. You need to study Isaiah. 
gulp, we can do this, okay? And that's what he ended chapter 16 with. So before this interruption slash preview of coming attractions, this pre-enactment in chapter 17, that's what he was doing at the end of chapter 16. When the gathering takes place, then the words of Isaiah will be fulfilled, which talk about the watchman lifting up his voice, the people singing together, seeing eye to eye when the Lord brings again Zion. That's what he's been getting at, so let's get back to that. Verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that when they shall be fulfilled, these words that I just quoted from Isaiah, then is the fulfilling of the covenant which the Father hath made unto his people, O house of Israel. Keep an eye out for the word covenant in these chapters that we're studying today. It comes up all over the place. Remember how Jesus introduced himself when he first descended in chapter 11. I have come to do the will of the Father who sent me. I do the will of the Father in all things. I came to earth. I condescended because that was the Father's plan. I atoned for the sins of humanity because that was the Father's promise. I am here to gather Israel because God gave his word. And I am the word of God. I am here to prove, to personify the fact that God keeps his promises. Made in premortality itself. Whom shall I send? I sent Jesus. And I keep sending him to every lost lamb until all the house of Israel and all my children in all the world are gathered home. When that happens, you know that the Father is fulfilling his covenant. Verse 13, then, there's a lot of thens here also. Almost it's this and then and then and then. This is what's happening. You really get a sense of momentum as we are barreling forward to the fulfillment of these incredible covenants. Then shall the remnants, which shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth, be gathered in from the east and from the west, from the south, from the north. They shall be brought to the knowledge of the Lord their Redeemer, who hath redeemed them. Whenever we look for physical gathering, keep an eye out for the spiritual gathering that is part of that. In fact, it's the greatest part. The physical gathering, in fact, may simply be a part, a subheading of the spiritual gathering that precedes it, that precipitates it, that allows these things to take place. Now, from verse 14 through about verse 20, we see a repetition of what Jesus taught back in chapter 16. Again, he's trying to pick up where they left off. You didn't quite get it then, so go home and ponder and pray and prepare, and I'm going to come back. Persist. Well, let's get back to that lesson. And it's that lesson of role reversal that we saw throughout chapter 16 with Jews and Gentiles. We, we saw that pre-enacted with Samuel the Lamanite, Lamanites and Nephites, that the house of Israel was scattered because of their wickedness and the Gentiles came in, found the Americas and participated in part of that scattering. But from their privileged position where the gospel was restored among them, they have to share the gospel with others. The chosen have to choose everyone else. The whole have to bring the sick, okay? And if that doesn't happen, then we get this role reversal where you fall from your privileged position. You have kinked the hose, and so the Lord takes the hose away from you because he's got to get the water to the end of the row. And so those Gentiles who scattered Israel will end up being scattered by Israel unless they repent, which is always the hope that if they'll repent, then they join the house of Israel. It's all one big happy family. That's been the goal from the beginning. Remember, this is exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. The chosen making sure that everyone gets chosen too. So again, that's the sense you get from verse 14 through verse 20, which is kind of a synopsis of what he taught before in chapter 16. 
if my quick review here was confusing, then go back and rewatch 3 Nephi 3.15.16. I explain it more in depth there. Again, you get this sense in verse 15. If the Gentiles do not repent after the blessing which they shall receive, then they'll be scattered as well. And then he repeats that idea in verse 20, that the sword of my justice hangs over them at that day, and except they repent, it shall fall upon them, saith the Lord, yea, even upon all the nations of the Gentiles. This is what God has always been after, repentance, returning to me. I turned to the Gentiles because the house of Israel wouldn't repent. And I'm turning back to the house of Israel because the Gentiles aren't repenting. I'm no respecter of persons. If you will come unto me, then I will receive you with open arms. Now, like I said, these verses are a repeat in many ways of what he taught in chapter 16. But he does bring in an additional witness from his Old Testament cloud of witnesses. In verse 16 and 17, he quotes Micah chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. This is how he says it to the Nephites. Then shall ye, who are a remnant of the house of Jacob, go forth among them, among the Gentiles. This is part of that role reversal, when the scatterers become scattered themselves. And ye shall be in the midst of them who shall be many, and ye shall be among them as a lion among the beasts of the forest, and as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he goeth through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Thy hand shall be lifted up, upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. Now I'll admit, that sounds harsh. This quote from Micah, and it's equally harsh in Micah itself. But please remember, who's the one speaking here? Jesus. And what's he talking about? He's talking about lions going among lambs. And who is Jesus? He is both the lion and the lamb. He understands both sides. He wants to bless both the sick and the whole like he did in chapter 17. And how to balance the justice of the lion and the mercy of the lamb, how to look at both lions and lambs in each of us and draw out the best of both, to care equally for both Jew and Gentile. It's like being a parent when one of your children hurts another one of your children and you care about them both, both victim and perpetrator. Jesus will take care of things. He understands both sides. He loves both sides. He is lion and lamb himself. And what's the goal? Verse 18, I will gather my people together as a man gathereth his sheaves into the floor. And in his big picture gathering, he's gathering both the gatherers and the gathered. That's one of the reasons he sets up inequality in pursuit of equality, exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. By setting things up with this separation, the haves and the have-nots both have things to teach each other and to learn from each other and to do for one another. His big goal is to gather everyone. And he engages one group of people to help him gather the other. And in the process, he's gathering both. Didn't we all feel that who have served missions? That we thought we were doing all this amazing work for everyone else, and we were, but really, who was the one great, most greatly blessed? We were. Jesus was using the gathering to gather the gatherers too. Now, if you look again at the way he says it in verse 18, I will gather my people together. Now, back in chapter 10, he would have finished that with, as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. But here he finishes it with, as a man gathereth his sheaves into the floor. So now we've shifted from a scene of danger at the barnyard, where the hen is, is wildly clucking to its chicks, to a time further out in the field, where now we're harvesting. 
The field is white, already to be harvested. We are gathering sheaves. This is the fulfillment of the parable of the wheat and tares. And notice where we're gathering them. To the floor. Now, what's that all about? To be more specific, it's to the threshing floor. When you've been out in the wheat fields and you're thrusting your sickle in with your might, gathering the wheat into sheaves, bundles, so that you can carry them back to the threshing floor. What's the threshing floor for? It's to separate wheat from chaff. You see, out in the field, we were trying to separate wheat from tares. But as we bring it in, we found the wheat. But even the wheat itself has work to do. Didn't we see that back in chapter 8, 9, 10? You've been spared, but only because you were more righteous than they. That's wheat and tares. You were part of the wheat. But what's the first message for you, wheat? Repent and return unto me. You still have some chaff in you. When you make bread, you don't put a whole wheat stalk in there. You put in grains. You put in flour. You use the kernel, not the chaff. And how do you separate the two? When they're part of the same good wheat stalk, you thresh it. And that takes place on a threshing floor. We beat the wheat until the good and the bad come apart. They separate. That's always what God does as he tries to take something without form and void and turn it into something very good. He separates light from darkness. He separates land from sea. He's separating wheat from chaff. And that takes some of the beating that takes place in places like threshing floors. Now, if you want to make this a little more personal for all of you fellow non-farmers out there that have never spent time threshing wheat, if you go back through the Old Testament and look for what happens on threshing floors, it's incredible to see the symbolism of this. For example, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, King David has sinned in numbering Israel, putting his trust a little bit too much in the arm of flesh instead of, no, who cares about the size of my army? God will take care of things. So there's a plague that Israel suffers, the destroying angel that goes through Israel. But in chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles, you have an angel that comes to King David and says to him, set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And when David does that, the destroying angel sheathes his sword. So what is it that stops the destroying angel? What is it that shifts the balance from justice to mercy in the eyes of God? Where does our destruction turn into our deliverance? At a threshing floor. An altar of sacrifice is set up there. So threshing floors are a place of separation. They're also a place of sacrifice. They're a place of deliverance. And then fast forward. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, when Solomon builds the temple, guess where he does it? In the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. I think it is such a moving metaphor that the temple, the house of God, was built on a threshing floor. You have to be wheat just to get in. But as you're in, the Lord is still working on you and in you to separate wheat from chaff, to help you discern between light and darkness, even in more nuanced ways, to work in us so that he can work out of us the last vestiges of sin. I think that's what Elder Christofferson once called it. What a lofty goal, a kind of 
service and sacrifice, the kind of selflessness, the kind of worthiness and purification, the ennobling of the human soul that takes place in the temple. If you think back to what Ammon said after his incredible missionary journeys, behold, the field was ripe and blessed are ye, for ye did thrust in the sickle and did reap with your might. Yea, all the day long did ye labor and behold the number of your sheaves. They shall be gathered into the garners that they are not wasted. Well, that garner is the temple too a place of safety and security, a covert from storm and from rain. It is God's house that is the threshing floor. It is God's house that is the garner. It is God's house that is the place and the purpose of the gathering. That's what Joseph Smith taught. What was God's purpose in gathering his people in any age of the earth's history? To build temples, the prophet said. That's why they gathered to Kirtland. That's why they gathered to Nauvoo. That's why they gathered to Salt Lake. It's why we are gathering now to the stakes of Zion where temples are beginning to dot the earth. Threshing floors and garners increasingly becoming only a stone's throw away. The mother hen is gathering her chicks. The good shepherd is seeking his lost lambs. The man of holiness is gathering his sheaves into the floor. Now from there, he quotes Micah again, this time chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. In fact, let me start quoting Micah 4, verse 12, and see how it leads into 3 Nephi 20, verse 19. Micah says, But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. Do we sometimes scratch our head and wonder what God is doing? Do we sometimes question his governance of the universe? especially when it comes to feeling scattered, wondering about role reversals and first and last and last first, what is going on? Well, in the midst of that kind of confusion, here's Micah's promise. He shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Sound like what Jesus just said in chapter 20, verse 18? And then Micah continues, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. This is a threshing floor after all. For I will make thine horn iron. And then he goes on from there. Now see where he picks up with this in 3 Nephi chapter 20, verse 19. For I will make my people with whom the Father hath covenanted. So this clarifies that all that Micah was talking about is in the context of the Father's covenant with his people. Yea, I will make thy horn iron. Okay, now we're back to Micah. And I will make thy hooves brass. Thou shalt beat in pieces many people. I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. And behold, I am he who doeth it. Now again, that sounds harsh. Maybe even harsher than the idea of a young lion among the flocks of sheep treading down and tearing in pieces. But remember, this is the Lord as both lion and lamb. And here, when it talks about iron horns and brass hooves and beating in pieces many people, this is not some kind of militaristic call to arms. Let's unpack this incredible verse. As part of the gathering, which is part of God's covenant, he's going to take his people and make their horn iron. So we're trying to shift the metaphor now from a lion back in verse 16, earlier in Micah, to some kind of an ox, uh, something with horns. And think about what animals do with their horns. Often these are used in battle, right? And imagine a clash of these animals, both having horns. But imagine if one of them had horns made of iron, an unbreakable horn. Now even here, don't think too much about horns used in battle. 
But that battle is simply to establish leadership of the herd. So in some ways, whichever animal has the strongest horns provides the leadership and the protection for the entire group. Now, isn't that what God's chosen are supposed to do? He's giving them a stronger horn than others. Why? So that they can serve and protect everyone else. Not to fight them. It's to fight the enemy. In fact, here's a fascinating cross-reference. Deuteronomy 33 is where Moses, who's about to, to leave Israel as they go into the promised land, and he returns to God, he blesses each of the 12 tribes. And notice the blessing he makes upon the tribes of Joseph. He doesn't separate out Ephraim and Manasseh here as two separate ones. And that's important because we see many in the church today, the majority, are often from the tribe of Ephraim. And yet the Book of Mormon peoples were from the tribe of Manasseh, Lehi at least, in his posterity. Both Ephraim and Manasseh are part of the tribes of Joseph. And what was the blessing that Moses pronounced upon the tribes of Joseph? Listen to this. The whole blessing is Deuteronomy 33, 13 through 17. But notice this phrase in verse 12. Blessed of the Lord be his land. See, the first time Joseph received blessings was back at the end of Genesis, Genesis 49, when Israel himself, Jacob, lays his hands upon each of his sons and gives them kind of an, an original patriarchal blessing. And for Joseph, it talked about a branch growing over the wall. So think of this fruitfulness and going beyond a natural barrier. Picture the Lehites, this one of the tribes of Joseph, extending themselves, growing into a new land. And part of the blessing for this tribe is blessing upon the land. Then, th listen to this in verse 17. His horns are like the horns of unicorns. Now that is an interesting translation. The King James translators may have been getting ahead of themselves. Wild oxen is what they meant by that. But his horns are like the horns of wild oxen. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. So do you get a sense from that? Another purpose for the horns? It's not just to fight off enemies. Again, it's leadership, it's protection, it's gathering. With their horns, they can push, they can guide. It's like a cattle prod from the cattle himself. That he is shepherding, guiding the rest of the herd together. These are oxen who use their horns to push the people together, to gather them from all over the earth. Next time you go to the threshing floor, to the temple, and get down to floor level itself, the baptistry, what do you see at that lowest point of the temple? You see 12 oxen facing the directions so that they can go out over all the ends of the earth. What is the burden that they bear? The covenant. They're carrying it to the world upon their own backs. The blessings of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Cleansing through repentance and faith in the saving grace of God. And what do each of those 12 oxen have? Horns that they use as they spread out across the world to herd the rest of the family home. Imagine doing that with an iron horn. Miraculous strength, far beyond what we would naturally be able to grow ourselves. That's what the Lord is offering. And our hoofs, brass, think about why we shoe a horse to make that natural hoof into something unnaturally strong so that they can run faster, work harder, do more. When I taught at the MTC years ago, 
I asked the missionaries one day, we were just getting to know each other better, and I thought this would be an interesting way to get to know each other spiritually, and especially focused on our missions. I asked the, all the elders and sisters in the district I was teaching, what scripture did you put on your missionary plaque? I think that can often tell us what resonates with a particular elder or sister. And I still remember one whose missionary plaque scripture blew me away because he chose something from Isaiah. Now, I can't remember if he did the Isaiah version or the second Nephi version. They both say the same thing. Since we're in the Book of Mormon already, let's stick with that one. But in second Nephi chapter 15, or in other words, Isaiah chapter 5, he chose verses 26 through 29. This is an amazing kid. He must have loved symbolism. It says, he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far. Plant the flag, right? Raise the standard. He will hiss unto them from the ends of the earth. That hiss is a whistle. The kind that I always get jealous of that somebody else can do because I can't. You know, that piercing one where they stick their fingers in their mouth. It's, I can't do it, okay? But that hiss unto the ends of the earth. And they shall come with speed swiftly. They heard the cluck of the hen. They heard the voice of the shepherd. They heard the roar of the lion. And they're coming None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. In other words, you don't trip over your skirt. You don't trip over your shoelace. 28. Whose arrows shall be sharp and all their bows bent. Do you get a sense how ready they are? Sharpened arrows, bent bows, ready just let it fly. Their horses' hooves... Now do we get a sense to remind us of what Jesus was talking about from Micah? Their horses' hooves shall be counted like flint. Their wheels like a whirlwind, they're roaring like a lion. You get this sense of, imagine flint and steel. Imagine sparks flying because these horses are running so fast. Picture an iron horn and a brass hoof that nothing can stand in the way or stop or slow down these messengers. That's the kind of missionary this elder wanted to be. His plaque ended with 29. They shall roar like young lions. Yea, they shall roar and lay hold of the prey. Sound a little like the other verses from Micah that Jesus was quoting? But as compared to that one about treading down and tearing in pieces, what are the lions doing here with their prey? Interestingly, they shall carry them away safe and none shall deliver. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And with brass hooves and iron horns, we'll be able to do just that. Now back to 3 Nephi 20, verse 19, when it says, thou, thou shalt beat in pieces many people. Again, that sounds violent. It sounds militaristic. But what did he just talk about in the preceding verse? Gathering sheaves into the floor. What are you going to do with those sheaves? You're going to beat them in pieces to separate good from bad within themselves. We've already separated sheep from goats. Now we're just working on purifying the sheep. We've already separated wheat from tares. Now we're just working on the wheat to get the chaff out of it. That's what happens as we gather people into the temple. Nothing purifies and sanctifies us more than that ennobling work. The covenants that we make there with Christ as he is raising us to a higher level. Isn't that what he was doing in the sermon at the temple? The law said, but I say, I've already separated you. Now I'm gathering you. And in the process of gathering, I'm still trying to help separate the good from the evil within each one of you. He is beating us in pieces 
in his house. And it's all to purify and to sanctify us. The next two phrases in that verse, I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. If this sounds a little too much like Robin Hood, where he's out stealing from the rich to be able to give to the poor. No, this is an idea of consecration. Again, we're not fighting them. We're not beating them up so that we can steal their stuff. We are gathering them, sanctifying them, so that they will then consecrate to God all that they have. Remember, it was their privileged position that they started to kink the hose and keep all that water for themselves. That was part of the problem. And so now as they are purified, the hose unkinks and they can consecrate all that water to God who will then make sure it gets to the end of every row. And who's the one doing it? Who's in charge of this distribution? End of verse 19. I am he who doeth it. If there's anyone who knows just how strong or soft to push with the horn, just how fast or slow to run with the hoof, just how much pressure to apply when threshing. There's actually a whole amazing passage in Isaiah where he goes through all the different ways different plants are harvested and that some you have to beat and others you just carefully separate out. The Lord knows just how hard to blow on the fire. Not too hard to blow it out, not too soft to do it no good, but to coax it into open flame. He is he who does it. And all of this with the fixed purpose, with the eye single to bringing every lost lamb home. Verse 21, it shall come to pass that I will establish my people, O house of Israel. 22, I'll establish them in this land. That's part of the covenant which I made with your father Jacob. It shall be a new Jerusalem. The powers of heaven shall be in the midst of this people. Yea, even I will be in the midst of you. You get a sense of the 10th article of faith now? That we believe in the literal gathering of Israel, the restoration of the 10 tribes, that the new Jerusalem, that Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be established upon the American continent, this land, part of the covenant of the Father, that Christ will return and reign personally upon the earth. I will be in the midst of you. And eventually the earth itself will receive its paradisiacal glory. It's all here. In verse 23, Jesus tells them, I am he of whom Moses spake when he said that a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, that Jesus in so many symbolic ways would repeat what Moses did in gathering out his people from a land of bondage and bringing them into a promised land baptizing them in the Red Sea, purifying them by holy fire, leading them to Sinai to give them his law, providing manna in the wilderness, bringing them into the promised land. Jesus will do all of those things. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. I do hope we listen to Jesus better than the Israelites listened to Moses. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be cut off from among the people. We've cut ourselves off from God. And it wasn't just Moses saying so. Verse 24, all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have testified of me. That's who I am. And do you remember who you are? Verse 25, behold, ye are the children of those same prophets. They were teaching about me, but they were teaching you. Ye are of the house of Israel. Ye are of the covenant which the father made with your fathers. And what was that covenant all about? 
to Abraham he said, in thy seed, there's the exclusivity, shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. There's the inclusivity. I'm choosing you to choose everyone else. And you see how he kind of raises them up and expands their self-perception with each of those phrases? You are the children of the prophets. The ones I've been quoting, they were speaking to you. Raise it up. You're the house of Israel. Go higher than that. You're the seed of Abraham. Higher than that. That's the covenant of the Father. You get in big picture? I don't know if that happened to you when you received your patriarchal blessing, where you realized, wow, God knows exactly who I am. But he places me in perspective. I am one of the tribes of Israel. I've often had students come to me, especially if they come from tribes that are less well explained in Scripture. If you're from a tribe of Joseph, Ephraim or Manasseh, or if you're from the tribe of Judah, for example, there's some amazing things in the Scriptures. Again, Jacob's blessings in Genesis 49, Moses' blessings in Deuteronomy 33. Some great insight there. But I've had students come to me and say, I'm from Benjamin. Any idea what I should know about myself? I'm from Reuben. I'm from any of these other tribes. And for those for whom the scriptures aren't very clear as, as far as what that tribal inheritance entails, I usually tell them, if you don't know much about dad, go up to grandpa. And if you don't know much about grandpa, figure out great grandpa and so on. Whatever tribe you happen to be, you are the house of Israel. So think about the blessings God promised to Jacob, to Israel. And from that, go up another two generations. That no matter what tribe you are, you're house of Israel and you are seed of Abraham. And that's what the Lord is saying to them there in verse 25. And as seed of Abraham, regardless of what tribe you happen to be, it's your job to make sure God can keep his word. To unkink the hose through which God is trying to send the fullness of the gospel to all the kindreds of the earth. That's where we come in. We are covenant makers and covenant keepers, but it's not just our covenant that we're trying to keep. As we keep our covenant, we are actually allowing the Father to keep his. That's part of glorifying him, as we saw in the sacrament that they just partook of again. In fact, the way this phrase, that last one, in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed, the way that's described in Abraham chapter 2, verse 11, he keeps clarifying. Every time that seed is mentioned, he ties it back into priesthood. That's who I'm talking about. People who have God's authority. God's sons and daughters that have been given authority to perform work in his name. Remember what the Lord says in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, about the oath and covenant of the priesthood? What happens when we magnify our responsibilities within the priesthood? They become the sons of Moses and of Aaron. We'll need to remember that for a future verse. And in the process, we become the seed of Abraham and the church and kingdom and the elect of God. See what he's doing? Again, kind of expanding our understanding with each additional phrase. Here it's children of the prophets, house of Israel, of the covenant made to Abraham. In the oath and covenant, sons of Moses and Aaron, seed of Abraham, church and kingdom, elect of God. I've always loved that verse, but as I was studying some other places where similar language is used, I was blown away by this one, both its content and its context. This is Doctrine and Covenants 103. When Zion's camp had finally arrived in Missouri, ready to redeem Zion, only to be told, you're not going to be able to do it this way, at least not now. Specifically, they're told this, the redemption of Zion must needs come by power. 
Therefore I will raise up unto my people a man who shall lead them like as Moses led the children of Israel. I think it's fine to think of mortal prophets to whom those verses might apply. But if you take it back to 3 Nephi 20, Moses spoke of the prophet that would be raised up. And Jesus says, I am that prophet. He's the one that will lead us to the promised land ultimately. But back to DNC 103. For ye are the children of Israel and of the seed of Abraham. Seeing yourself in the big picture. And ye must needs be led out of bondage by power. And with a stretched out arm, the wing extended to gather us. And as your fathers were led at the first, even so shall the redemption of Zion be. Not just by angels, but also by my presence. And in time ye shall possess the goodly land. The gathering is still guaranteed. We just have to become Zion before we can establish Zion. It has to become our lifestyle before it ever becomes our location, our attitude before it's our forwarding address. And a huge part of that is fully living up to our place within the big picture. Seed of Abraham, church and kingdom, elect of God, chosen, meant to choose all others. You see, there's an order even hinted at in verse 26 of 3 Nephi 20. The Father having raised me up unto you first. We're getting some first, last, last, first kind of idea. You first. And sent me to bless you with what? In turning away every one of you from his iniquities. That's the blessing of repentance. The ultimate blessing I can give you. And this because ye are the children of the covenant. Not chosen because you're sinless. Chosen in spite of the fact that you are sinful, but chosen to repent. Because it usually takes a lot of repentance to become experts enough in the subject to be able to teach it powerfully to others. It takes experts in exercising faith to be able to extend faith to other people. Again, that's one of the reasons we saw earlier why he's shifting to the Gentiles. They had a harder time at it. They had to rely upon spirit and servant rather than voice and visitation. But in the process, they become experts at gaining testimonies themselves and ready to go extend that blessing and share that witness to the house of Israel. So you first repent so then you can cry repentance. You first turn and return so that you can turn others back to me. You first, you children of the covenant, so that you can bring everyone else into the covenant as well. Verse 27, and after, so we got you first, and now after, after that ye were blessed, then fulfilleth the Father the covenant which he made with Abraham, saying, repeats it again, in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Blessed with what? Unto the pouring out of the Holy Ghost through me upon the Gentiles which blessing upon the Gentiles shall make them mighty above all unto the scattering of my people, O house of Israel. We're back to that initial role reversal. The original last, the Gentiles, become the first because they were open to the spirit that descended upon them. They grabbed hold of that blessing with both hands. And it was because of the rejection of those blessings that the first, the house of Israel, became last and that they were scattered. Verse 28, they shall be a scourge unto the people of this land. That's using horns and hooves in the wrong way. Nevertheless, when they shall have received the fullness of my gospel, then if they shall harden their hearts against me, I will return their iniquities upon their own heads, saith the Lord. This goes way back to 1 Nephi chapter 17. When Laman and Lemuel are struggling with, wait, we're going to build a boat? We're really going to leave the promised land? At least we're only, I don't know, 
a couple months journey away from it, we're really going to ditch? We're going to go all the way to some new quote-unquote promised land I've never heard of? And it's there that Nephi explains to them, fascinating verse in chapter 17 of 1 Nephi, that God is no respecter of persons. There's the inclusivity. But the righteous are favored of him. There's the exclusivity. Righteous because they were blessed with the opportunity to repent and the call to extend that blessing to others. There is no hierarchy of worth, but there is a hierarchy of worthiness. And if whenever we hear the word worthiness, we, we automatically assume that it's worth, then use a different word. Change the vocabulary. Talk about righteousness. Talk, talk about purity. Not perfection. But are we repenting? Are we moving forward? Are we laying hold of these blessings? Are we allowing God to thresh us, to eliminate the chaff that's a part of each of us? If you're working on that, then he is choosing you. And he's choosing you to spread those blessings to everyone else. Verse 29, I will remember the covenant which I have made with my people. I have covenanted with them that I would gather them together in mine own due time. So be patient. He plays the long game that I would give unto them again the land of their fathers for their inheritance, which is the land of Jerusalem. There will be two promised lands, Jerusalem and New Jerusalem, Old World, New World, Bible, Book of Mormon, Judah, Joseph, these fascinating parallels, which is a promised land unto them forever, saith the Lord. How's it going to happen? Verse 30, it shall come to pass that the time cometh when the fullness of my gospel shall be preached unto them. Starting to see why we do so much missionary work, so much temple work. The gathered must become gatherers of everyone else. Verse 31, as that happens, as the fullness of the gospel is preached, they shall believe in me that I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and shall pray unto the Father in my name. The spiritual gathering is taking place. Verse 32, then shall their watchmen lift up their voice, and with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye. Guess what? He's just pulled us back into where he left off at the end of chapter 16. It's come full circle now. The pre-enactment in chapter 17. The explanation in chapter 20. He's now brought it full circle. Now do you understand? Has the pausing and pondering and praying and preparing and persisting paid off? Is it making sense to you yet? Then shall their watchmen lift up. Verse 33, then will the Father gather them together again and give unto them Jerusalem for the land of their inheritance. 34, then shall they break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. He hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Father. And the Father and I are one. He gave his word, and I am the word of God. He made the promise, and I ensured that he could keep it. We are one in that. Honestly, it blows me away how all of this comes full circle. That Jesus is quoting Isaiah 52. These verses in, at the end of 3 Nephi 16, comes back to it here in 3 Nephi 20. Same verses that the original Nephi asked his brother Jacob to teach the people and explain it to them. Back in 2 Nephi chapter 8, these, these passages from Isaiah, there is resonance throughout Nephite history here. Jesus is bringing it all together with this crescendo of thens. You get the sense of momentum. Then this happens, and then this will happen, and then this will happen. That's how 32 begins, and 33 begins, and 34 begins, and 36 begins. Then shall be brought to pass that which is written. And what he does now is just rewind a little bit. 
in Isaiah 52. He's been quoting verse 8, 9, and 10. That was the one in 16. That's the one in 20. Now he just rewinds, starts at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 52, and begins quoting that. Then shall be brought to pass that which is written, Awake, awake again. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For thenceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. There's no uncircumcised and unclean left. The uncircumcised have all been circumcised. In other words, the outside the covenant have been brought into the covenant. That's all that circumcision was for. The unclean have become clean since they've been blessed first to turn away from their iniquity and been led by others who have repented to repent themselves. They have awoken and awoken again. This is like King Benjamin when the angel comes to him and says, Awake. And then he's awake. And, he's, and now awake. It's like get up physically and then get up spiritually. Put on your strength. Put on your beautiful garments. Garments. Covenants. Coverings. Coats of skins from the Garden of Eden. To cover our nakedness. Cover in Hebrew. To atone. It's all the same word. That's what clothing is for symbolically. 37, still quoting Isaiah 52. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. That one actually seems a little strange at first. What, arise, sit down. First you awake twice, then you stand up, and then you sit back down. But have you ever done that where you're sitting and you're kind of slouching and you're, I don't know, your pants kind of right up a little bit, and so you stand up and straighten everything, and then <clears throat> you're ready to sit back down? There just seems to be this sense of getting up and getting ready, of strengthening yourself, of beautifying yourself, of shaking off the dust, of getting up, sitting down, now I'm ready. Loose yourself from the bands of thy neck. Take off these chains, you captive daughter. You're free now. The deliverer, Moses 2.0, is with you. 38, for thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. He's still quoting Isaiah 52 there. But I love the, the irony there. You sold yourself for nothing, and now you're going to be redeemed for no money. But there's a huge difference between the lack of money the first time and the lack of money the second. The first, you sold yourself, and you got nothing for it. The second part, you'll be redeemed, but this is not some kind of monetary transaction. It's much deeper than that. In the first instance, you sold yourself to Satan, who thinks you are worthless and therefore pays nothing for you. He has nothing to offer. But Jesus redeems you, not with money, but with his own blood, because he considers you not worthless like Satan does, but rather priceless like the father feels about all of his children. You see why there's no money changing hands either time? That's one thing that worthless and priceless have in common. First, I would pay nothing for you. And the second, there is no price high enough to quantify your worth. As Paul says to the Corinthians, we are bought with a price, but it's not a financial one. It is a relational one as the Lord takes our place and redeems us without money, but not without his own redeeming blood. Verse 39, the Lord continues, Verily, verily, I say unto you that my people shall know my name. 
Yea, in that day they shall know that I am he that doth speak, that I've been the hen clucking and the lion roaring, that I've been the shepherd calling you home. And then, verse 40, see, we keep getting back to the thens. This happens and this and this and this. There's so much momentum building up in this chapter. Then shall they say, he's quoting Isaiah 52 again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings unto them that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings unto them of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. That is such good news. Too good to be true in some ways. No wonder it has to be he that speaks it in verse 39, or his servants whose voice is the same. We have to be reassured by him himself, and we will be. Such beautiful verses. These are the verses that King Noah's wicked priests tried to trip up Abinadi with. And the way Abinadi walks you through all kinds of scripture to get to his answer, it's the longest and most powerful tangent I think I've ever seen in scripture. He understands their question. Explain this verse. Oh, I will. In like three chapters. And on the way, let me explain atonement. Let me teach you about Jesus. Let me quote you just quoted Isaiah 52. Let me just bump ahead just a touch and teach you Isaiah 53, the great suffering servant passage that personifies the atonement of Jesus Christ. If you haven't seen that video, it's, it's one of the first ones we got to back in March or April. But that the message of Abinadi explaining that passage is so profound. And here is an echo of that as Jesus himself, the most beautiful feet to ever set foot upon a mountain, belong to him. And he's the one explaining this now. He has nothing but good news for us here. 41, and then shall a cry go forth. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence. Touch not that which is unclean. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Again, this is the Lord coming with good news, glad tidings. You can repent of your sins. And then once we've repented, what's our first order of business? To cry to the world, come join us. Depart ye, go out from Babylon. This is Doctrine and Covenants 133, the great appendix to this final dispensation book of Scripture that invites us repeatedly to flee Babylon, to come out of the wicked world, to come to Zion and to be clean along the way. We are bearing the Lord's vessels. This is ancient Israel in bondage in Babylon. When Babylon falls and King Cyrus, a deliverer, comes and says, you can go home. You can return to your promised land. You can rebuild your temple. So take the temple vessels and return with them to Jerusalem so that you can reestablish the house of God on the threshing floor. But be clean if you are burying those vessels. If you are carrying the temple back home, then be clean as you do so. You've just been cleansed by the thresher himself. Now cleanse the rest of the world. Verse 42, there's no rush because there's no danger. You shall not go out with haste nor by flight for the Lord will go with you. He already said that, right? I will be in your midst. The God of Israel shall be your rearward. So whether in front or behind, this is not the sense of, oh no, I'm surrounded by the enemy but rather the, the security of I am encircled about by the arms of safety. I'm under the hen's wing. Before, behind, he's all around me. 43, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. 
Of course, he'll be prudent in the way he deals with things, with both lions and lambs, with both Jews and Gentiles, with the first and the last, the healed and the whole. How's he going to do it? Verse 44, as many were astonished at thee, his visage, that means his face, his countenance, was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Well, what do you expect with someone who bears our griefs and carries our sorrows? What do you expect from someone who falls upon his face in Gethsemane as he bears the weight of the world's sins and sorrows? What do you expect from someone who condescends to be with us and like us, to descend below all things, for a God to become man? Talk about a face being marred. I barely recognize you. As Paul taught, that Jesus pours out that glory. His visage is marred more than any man's ever could be. But it's through that condescension, through that incarnation, verse 45, that he shall sprinkle many nations. That's how cleanliness came in the Old Testament. Sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice upon the priest, they need it too, upon the altar, upon the people of Israel themselves. Sprinkled with the blood of the man who was marred for each of us. And as a result, 45 continues, kings shall shut their mouths at him. It must take a lot for a king to shut up. But he has seen things he's never imagined, thinking of things he's never considered. That which had not been told them shall they see. That which they had not heard shall they consider. Kings are supposed to know everything, think everything through, see the big picture, but not even they could comprehend the love of God as manifest in the sacrifice of his only begotten son. They will consider the inconsiderable. They will hear the unheard, the news that's too good to be true, but that is true. God is there to gather us. Verse 46, he ends this chapter. Verily, verily, I say unto you, all these things shall surely come, even as the Father hath commanded me. He keeps saying, I always do what the Father says. You can trust his word because I'm his word. And then shall this covenant which the Father hath covenanted with his people be fulfilled. And then shall Jerusalem be inhabited again with my people, and it shall be the land of their inheritance. Oh, we cannot lose sight of chapter 20. It is incredible. The then, 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 then. Just this crescendo, this building momentum to, to push through all of the barriers that keep God from keeping his word. Jesus does all of that and he asks us to help with it. And there is a sense of timing. Again, you hopefully sense that with all the then, 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 then. Well, when? When is it going to happen? If, if all of these things, kind of the dominoes start to fall, when are they going to begin? Chapter 21 answers that question. He says in verse 1, I give unto you a sign that ye may know the time when these things shall be about to take place. So right in those, those moments, right before the first domino drops, and then, 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 everything follows. Here's the sign. The sign that I shall gather in from their long dispersion my people, O house of Israel, and shall establish again among them my Zion. Now you'd think we'd be at the edge of our seat. I hope that we are. We'd be holding our breath, just waiting. So I, I want all these things to happen, and you're going to give us the sign that we'll know that it's, a, that it's go time? 
If you've ever had to like sing a hymn or a song in public and, and the person that's playing the piano will always let you know or the conductor, when you hear these notes, that's when you need to jump in. Or I'll raise my baton and then it's go time. Or just certain signals that you give, whether it's in music or in acting or in sports or in dance. And I just need to know my mark. And when we hit that, we're often running full speed ahead. And yet we lose sight of it because verses two through five is one of the longest and in some ways kind of convoluted, just repeat and flashback, all these kinds of asides and tangents. It's like, whoa, whoa, what's the sign? And he says it like four or five times in these verses, but we seem to miss the forest for the trees every time. Let's see if we can catch it. Verse two, behold, this is the thing which I will give unto you for a sign. You ready? For verily I say unto you, that when these things which I declare unto you, and which I shall declare unto you hereafter of myself, and by the power of the Holy Ghost, which shall be given unto you of the Father. Like, uh-oh, see, we, we, we kind of went on an aside there, an important one, to talk about the Spirit and the importance of receiving it. But what were you talking about before we got there? Oh, yeah, when these things which I declare unto you. Now let's pick that up. These things which shall be given unto you of the Father, when they shall be made known unto the Gentiles, that they may know concerning this people who are a remnant of the house of Jacob and concerning this, my people who shall be scattered by them. Wait, wait, you lost me again. What are we talking about? Okay, let me, let's get back to it. Verse three, verily, verily, I say unto you, when these things shall be made known unto them of the father and shall come forth of the father from them unto you, for it is wisdom in the father that they should be established in this land and be set up as a free people by the power of the father, that these things might come forth from them unto the remnant of your seed. Wait, 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 you, you lost me again. Well, I know, I'm sorry, but it's all about the covenant. This is for the covenant, so that the covenant of the Father may be fulfilled, which he hath covenanted with his people, O house of Israel. Are we, are we back on, on topic? Or are we still on the tangent? I, the Lord is trying to pack everything into this little passage. The need for the Spirit, trying to keep the covenant, the things that God is teaching and how he's teaching it. But what's the, what's the core of this whole thing? Verse 5, he gets back to it. Therefore, when these works and the works which shall be wrought among you hereafter shall come forth unto the Gentiles, unto your seed, which shall dwindle in unbelief because of iniquity. Whoa, 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 whoa. you're losing me again. He keeps going down that path in verse six. For thus it behooveth the Father that it should come forth from the Gentiles, that he may show forth his power unto the Gentiles, for this cause that the Gentiles, if they will not harden their hearts, that they may repent and come unto me and be baptized in my name and know of the true points of my doctrine, that they may be numbered among my people, O house of Israel. Whoa, you lost me again. Well, don't get lost. That's important too. The whole reason that I'm scattering and gathering is so that I can involve both Jew and Gentile in the process. I want some flow to happen, but for flow to occur, there has to be some kind of sense of inequality leading to equality. High concentration moving towards low concentration. Exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. I had to get the Gentiles involved and I got them involved first as scatterers and now as gatherers. And the hope is, the plan initially, is for both groups, all of my children, to come together on this and to come together to me. And you see, by gathering others into the covenant, they get brought into the covenant themselves. That's how the Gentiles become numbered among my people, O house of Israel. Verse six is a fascinating verse, really important things to understand, but it does confuse us because it's in the midst of all of these, but, but what's the sign? And then seven, and when these things come to pass, 
that thy seed shall begin to know these things. Now he finally sums it up. It shall be a sign unto them that they may know that the work of the Father hath already commenced unto the fulfilling of the covenant which he hath made unto the people who are of the house of Israel. Plain as day, right? Or clear as mud. But don't let yourself get lost in the weeds. Again, there's so many things that the Lord says in these beautiful tangents about the Spirit, about learning about God, about the covenant, about the Gentiles gathering Israel in and thereby being gathered themselves, becoming numbered among the house of Israel. But what is the phrase that he keeps on saying? If verse 2 begins, this is the thing which I will give unto you for a sign, and if 7 ends, it shall be a sign unto them that the work of the Father hath already commenced, then what does he keep saying from 2 to 7? This is the sign. That was the sign. Well, what was the sign? Verse 2, when these things are made known. Verse 3, when these things shall be made known. Verse 5, when these works shall come forth. Verse 7, when these things come to pass, when they know these things. And what are these things? It's this. It's these things. It's the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is the great sign that the Father has already begun his work of gathering. When this book, when these truths come forth to the Gentiles first and from the Gentiles on to the house of Israel, it's go time. The Father is already doing his work. The then, 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 the dominoes are starting to fall. It's such an incredible time to be alive in this day of gathering. And the earliest saints, when they first heard the words from Samuel Smith on down, when they first laid hold of a copy of the Book of Mormon fresh off of E.B. Grandin's press, they knew what time it was. They started to gather Israel themselves. They started to gather to build temples. They started to write hymns about the gathering and sing songs of the gathering. I worry that sometimes we lose sight of that. President Nelson has not. He is laser focused on this because he knows what time it is. The sign has come forth. It came forth almost 200 years ago when these things appeared. And yet, in some ways, it hasn't really come forth until the last generation or two, when President Benson dusted off the Book of Mormon, this voice from the dust, for the whole church. And since then, missionary work has picked up speed. Temple construction has picked up speed in miraculous ways. When the book really comes forth to wake us up, to tell us who the Lord is and who we are and our role in the gathering, then the Father's work has already begun. We're, we're behind. We've we're, 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 got to get up to speed. Incredible what he's saying here. Miraculously, the Book of Mormon is not just the sign of the gathering. It's the instrument of the gathering. It's performing its own work. It's fulfilling its own promise. It's, it's incredible. Verse 9, in that day, which is our day, for my sake shall the Father work a work. Some things the Father delegates. We see that in the creation account. Other things, the crowning things, he takes into his own hand. The Father shall work a work, which shall be a great and a marvelous work among them. He's quoting Isaiah there. 
And there shall be among them those who will not believe it, although a man shall declare it unto them. He's quoting Habakkuk there, which Paul also does in the book of Acts. That this is so incredible that it'll come across as unbelievable. In fact, that's what incredible means. In, not credible, believable. It's too good to be true. Remember, it gets kings to shut up. Things they've never considered. Things beyond our comprehension. Things too wonderful for me. How's he going to perform this great and marvelous work? Verse 10, Behold, the life of my servant shall be in my hand. Therefore they shall not hurt him, although he shall be marred because of them. Yet I will heal him, for I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. Now those words could apply to someone like Joseph Smith. Marred but healed, persecuted but preserved, martyred, and yet enduring all things well and being exalted on high. On a much higher level, those words refer to Jesus Christ. The serpent wounded his heel, but in the process he crushed the serpent's head, marred but healed. In each case, God's wisdom greater than the cunning of the devil. Every time the adversary thinks he's winning, he's only kicking us upstairs, as the early saints described it. Now, both of those servants, the mortal servant, Joseph Smith, and the immortal servant, Jesus Christ, seem to occupy verse 11. Therefore, it shall come to pass that whosoever will not believe in my words, who am Jesus Christ, the ultimate servant, which the Father shall cause him, Joseph Smith, to bring forth unto the Gentiles. They're my words, Jesus says, but he is going to bring them forth unto the Gentiles. And I will give him power that he shall bring them forth unto the Gentiles. This takes you back to 2 Nephi chapter 3, when Joseph of Egypt prophesies of Joseph of Palmyra, having power to bring forth God's word and the power to convince people of that word. But those who reject his words as he is trying to convey Christ's words, end of verse 11, those are they who shall be cut off from among my people who are of the covenant. They've removed themselves from it. Verse 12 to 18, he then returns to Micah, picking up where he left off from the chapter before and then extending his reading of that text. My people who are a remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, yea, in the midst of them as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he go through both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. He read that before. Their hands shall be lifted up upon their adversaries, and all their enemies shall be cut off. He read that before. And he'll keep reading Micah, but he adds this phrase in the middle of it. The first phrase of 14. Yea, woe be unto the Gentiles, except they repent. And with that phrase, he clarifies what he's trying to get across in this passage from Micah. He'll go through the next few verses and talk about all that apostate Israel will have to go through that you can't trust in military might, that you can't trust in replacement gods or the idols that you put your trust in. You can't worship the works of your own hands, like he says at the end of 17. You've got to repent because wickedness is going to be done away. Like he says at the end of 19, it shall be done away. That's the millennium when the, the Savior returns and dwells upon the earth. And yet all of that that he's quoting from Micah can be avoided if they will repent. That's why that first insertion in verse 14 is so important. He gets back to that in verse 20, after he's done quoting Micah. It shall come to pass, saith the Father, that at that day, whosoever will not repent and come unto my beloved son, then will I cut off from among my people, O house of Israel. And I will execute vengeance and fury upon them, even as upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. 
That's the flip side of things that you've never heard and never considered. You cannot imagine how merciful God is, and you cannot imagine how just He is. He is lion and lamb to the full extent of both sets of attributes. But in 22, if they will repent and hearken unto my words and harden not their hearts, I will establish my church among them. They shall come in unto the covenant and be numbered among this, the remnant of Jacob, unto whom I have given this land for their inheritance. That's always been my goal, to bring you in, not to shut you out. It's why I called my people first and turned them away from their sins so that then they could go and call everyone else to do the same. That's 23. They shall assist my people, the remnant of Jacob, and also as many of the house of Israel as shall come, that they may build a city which shall be called the new Jerusalem. No wonder the gates are open wide as we sing in that beautiful song, The Holy City. It's because everybody helped build those gates. Of course, everyone is invited to come and enter because we're all invited to come and assist in its building. If anyone deserves to come through the open house, it's the contractors, right? And that's what the Lord is asking us to all be. So 22, they're repenting, coming into the covenant and the church. 23, they're assisting in the construction of the new Jerusalem. 24, they are assisting my people that they may be gathered in who are scattered upon all the face of the land in unto the new Jerusalem. And then... We get some more thens now. And then shall the work of the Father commence at that day. Wait, wait, wait. I thought you just talked about the, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon will let you know that the work of the Father has already commenced. It's, oh, yeah, yeah, it is. But you ain't seen nothing yet. What you thought was crescendo to climax, that was still just prelude. You want to see the real work? Buckle up and get ready for the millennium. God's preliminary work has been going on for the last 200 years and will yet continue until these things take place. And then shall the work of the Father really begin. Then shall it commence at that day, even when this gospel shall be preached among the remnant of this people. Verily I say unto you, at that day shall the work of the Father commence. He keeps talking about it's, it's starting, it's starting, it's starting. Well, I thought it already did start. Well, again, that's just warm up. Then shall the, at that day shall the work of the Father commence among all the dispersed of my people. Yea, even the tribes which have been lost, which the Father hath led away out of Jerusalem. Why do you think I went to my sheep first, and then my other sheep second, and now my other, other sheep third? The ripples are spreading. Yea, verse 27, the work shall commence. Third time he said it in the last two verses. The work shall commence among all the dispersed of my people, with the Father to prepare the way. Again, active involvement by God himself whereby they may come unto me, that they may call on the Father in my name. Yea, and then shall the work commence with the Father among all nations in preparing the way, whereby his people may be gathered home to the land of their inheritance. And just like before, they will go out from all nations, but shall not go out in haste, nor go by flight. For I will go before them, saith the Father. I will be their rearward. Wow, do you understand what he's, what he's promising to participate in? It's already begun, and it's yet to begin. And then, 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 and it will commence, commence, commence. The Father himself involved, the Lord going before and behind. No wonder Jeremiah said what he said way back in chapter 16 of his book. Speaking to 
and Israel who was just being scattered and carried captive into Babylon. He's the one that prophesied of a day when God would call for many hunters and many fishers. In other words, many gatherers who would go everywhere. Not just casting the net into easy waters or pulling down low-hanging fruit, but going hunting in every mountain and every hill and in the holes of the rocks, seeking lost lambs wherever they might be hiding. And then he says, if you thought the Exodus was epic, and it is, ask Charlton Heston. I mean, how many movies have they made the Prince of Egypt and the Ten Commandments and Moses and all these other, these Exodus epics. But as Jeremiah says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He'll have more incredible credentials by then to talk about. So instead of introducing him as, oh, this is the God of the Exodus, what could beat that? Verse 15, he answers it. This is what they'll say instead. The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he had driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. That's what the hunters and fishers are for. But you see what he's saying there? That the exodus will be eclipsed by the gathering. That the God of deliverance from Egypt will change his title Elevate his credentials from the God of the Exodus to the God of the gathering. And as the Lord liveth, it will be done. And we get to do it with him. What an honor. What a privilege to live in such a time as this, to gather Israel home. So to you of the iron horn and of the brass hoof, to you of the sharpened arrow and the bent bow, to you on the threshing floor, fly, serve, love, lift, gather. It is the Father's work. And the Book of Mormon sits before us as proof that it's already begun.